We also have another visitor in the Valley. I'm sure it was causing a bit of a stir. And this is the first U.S. president, Ulysses S. Grant, who decides to come out and see for himself what's going on with these saints in the Valley. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. And in today's episode, we will be talking about chapter 28, Until the Coming of the Son of Man. And we are so excited today to be talking with Jeff Anderson. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Will you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? So I work in the uh, global and acquisitions team, and we deal with records that uh, people bring in to donate to the church. And that's with the church history department, right? It's with the church history department. We are also responsible for the Utah areas. So if we go out and do interviews or get leads on records in various areas, we go out and gather those records. One of the cool things that your team gets to do is, as you mentioned, going out into the various areas of the church, training area church history advisors, acquiring items for the church history library collection, and helping them collect in areas. Jeff's team has a really cool job and is able to meet with lots of pioneering members all over the world. Yeah, it's it's way fun. I really enjoy my job. So Jeff, there's a lot going on in this chapter. Let's start with George Reynolds. Remind our listeners, who is George Reynolds and why is he involved in a legal case? Uh, you know, I don't have all the details on that, but I think that George Reynolds actually was kind of a test case to see where they stood with plural marriage. The government is attempting to really almost bring down the church because of the issue of plural marriage. And so they're going to test this and see how it stands in the courts. So George is supposed to go to jail and then run the test case. From the chapter, I think we learned that there was an agreement that he would be the only one until the courts had a chance to work through the issue, but they still arrest other people anyway. Right. And Cannon, I think, winds up going to jail also. Yeah. So George Q. Cannon, who is a counselor in the First Presidency, ends up in jail. Brigham has other legal troubles. Tell us about Anne Eliza Young. Anne Eliza Young writes a book about being married to Brigham, and it's, it's quite a scandalous book. It creates quite a stir. Because she's estranged at this point, and yeah. she sues Brigham Young for divorce. For divorce, yeah. So Brigham Young is traveling among the saints, and he is organizing things. He's putting the priesthood in order. He's also inviting the saints in San Pete area to build a temple. Where does he tell them to build a temple? He tells them to build it on the hill. If you've ever been there, of course, it's a beautiful building, and you can see it for miles. And this is in what is today Manti, Utah. We have, as you mentioned, a beautiful temple built on the spur of the mountain. So an important part of the church being a global church and beginning its outreach is translating materials into various languages. I believe our listeners will remember the Book of Mormon was first translated into Danish, mm -hmm. and then George Q. Cannon and Jonathan Napella translated it to Hawaiian. Mm -hmm. um, and is that it up to this point? No, actually there's some other languages that are done. So they've done French, they have done Danish, they do German and Italian and Welsh. 
and the Welsh one is kind of intriguing because, you know, I mean, how many things have you seen written in Welsh? But I've done little presentations with youth that'll come in and adults, and I say, now, raise your hand if you're descended from someone from Wales. And at least here in the valley, yeah, I see you guys holding your hands up. At least here in the valley along the Wasatch Front, there are a lot of people who are descended from people who joined the church in Wales in those early years. I'm descended from people who joined the church in, in Wales. It's just very common. So the church had a lot of success in Wales, and Dan Jones was one of the key players in Wales. He goes there, preaches the gospel, and there are a number of tracts that are translated into Welsh that were, were used by the missionaries because they had great success there. I was surprised that Spanish is so low on that list. I thought it would be one of the very first to be translated, but then, of course, we're following Hawaiian and things like that. So, But this is a really neat story. Tell us about this man that leads in that translation. So Melitón Trejo, he hears about the gospel. He's down in the Philippines. He comes back. A colleague of mine told me he shows up here in Salt Lake in full-dress military uniform. Yeah, in down fact, the street. in this chapter, it mentions that he made quite a splash because he's a Spanish military officer. He looks quite dashing in his yeah. military attire. And so he ultimately translates the Book of Mormon. Why they don't begin to work in Spanish initially, I really don't fully comprehend. I know that uh, is it Parley P. Pratt who goes down and really doesn't have a lot of success there in South America. There are some incursions in uh, the church, uh, partially because of plural marriage, going down into Mexico. And so they begin to kind of rub shoulders with the culture a little bit. And Trejo, certainly, who is Spanish, has that capacity. In fact, I think in the chapter, I think he really had a struggle communicating early in the valley because they couldn't find anybody who spoke Spanish. I mean, you can find today people all over the place who speak Spanish, but at the time, that was really a struggle for him. But he became the key player in getting the Book of Mormon translated into Spanish. And he wasn't even a member of the church. I think he joined the church, and ultimately by the time he uh, translates the Book of Mormon, he does. That, that's an interesting struggle, though. I think when you begin to introduce the gospel into an area, I can see where you have people who know the language but don't know the gospel, and you have people who know the gospel who don't know the language. And so to make sure that you get it translated right, I can see that would be a struggle to pull that off. Well, and when I only speak English, but when I've read the Book of Mormon in English, there are words that are sometimes difficult to understand. And so I thought it was neat about the process that missionaries that were preparing to go to Mexico were learning Spanish. And so they were working with Trejo to kind of get the language and having all the gospel principles correct. And yeah. anyway, I think it's an incredible process. Another really amazing part about this is that they decided to print excerpts of this new translation of the Book of Mormon. And in a future episode, we're going to find out what happens to those excerpts, but it becomes very important in the beginnings of the church spreading the gospel. There's a wonderful story that we're going to talk about again later about a sister who has a dream, and then her son finds these excerpts that were initially translated by Melaton Trejo. We also have another visitor in the valley. I'm sure it was causing a bit of a stir. And this is the first U.S. president, Ulysses S. Grant, mm -hmm. who decides to come out and see for himself what's going on with these saints in the valley. Tell us a little bit about his trip. Well, he shows up and famously, in fact, I was reading it and I thought, gee, is this really a, an urban myth or did it really happen? And I assume that they've done good research on this. But the account of him going through and he turns to Governor Spry, I believe it is, sees all these children. Governor Emery. Governor Emery. Yeah. And he sees all these children and he says, who are these children? And he says, well, these are Mormon children. We'd say they're Latter-day Saint children today. But, and Grant says, 
I've been deceived. And if you look at the newspapers and the press that is being published in the East, I think there's a lot of real anger that's being fomented there in, in the East. And Grant's listened to a lot of this, I'm sure, and has bought into it. And so he comes here convinced that the Latter-day Saints are something that they really are not. And so when he sees these sweet little innocent children walking in the streets and meets the other people, he realizes that they are they are different people than what he's been led to believe. Another part of that story I like about the president's visit is his wife, Julia, and she and Brigham Young get to talking and she asks Brigham Young, I don't really know what to call you. And he gives her some options. <laughs> he says, sometimes I'm governor, sometimes president, and sometimes General Young. And that's what she decides to call him because that's what she's comfortable with. But I really like, I think this is good insight into her personality because she just comes right out. And I mean, her objection is polygamy, polygamy. like or, po- with plural, plural marriage. marriage. She really struggles with that. And so I just, I really like the conversation that they have. I think it's open. I think it's fun. And just to picture it between the prophet of the church at the time, Brigham Young, and the first lady, I thought was just kind of a neat encounter. There's something else I was impressed with in this chapter, and that is we met a man by the name of Samuel Chambers. Samuel, as our listeners, if they've read the chapter, will remember, he was baptized as an enslaved person. He saved for five years to come to join with the saints in the valley. Um, When he did come, he came out with his wife and his child. I was fascinated to learn that he served as what they called an unordained assistant to the deacon's quorum. And we learned that he was faithful in his tithes and offerings. He attended all of his meetings. And I wanted to just play a little quote here to acknowledge what his experience was among the early saints. If I don't bear my testimony, he said, how do you know how I feel or how you feel? But if I rise and speak, I know I have a friend. And if I hear you speak as I speak, I know we are one. I just appreciated being able to hear his story. I hadn't often thought about people of African descent, people of color being here with the early saints. But in this volume, we've learned about several of them. And uh, I thought it was cool to learn a little bit about Samuel. If I can just comment a little bit. The issue of plural marriage and the issue of those of African descent and the priesthood, I very often feel with plural marriage that being male, I'm not in a position to really fairly approach that, you know, and and so when I hear some of our sisters say things, I don't know if I can, as a male, wrap my head around that feeling and the feeling that they feel about that. Right. And the same with the faith of those folks who join the church and yet can't have the priesthood. And the faith of some of the sisters who really are having a hard time chewing the issue of plural marriage and yet they do it is really astounding for me. It's just a incredible faith that they had to have had when all these things were kind of not played in their favor. Well, and what I love about Samuel's testimony is he's saying, if I don't share with you what I've come to know, and you're not going to know how I feel, and I'm not going to know how you feel. And I love that, just that everybody has such different experiences, and especially in the past, such difficult experiences. But that common testimony that we can share, that's how we can really relate to one another and start to try to understand what people are going through. Jeff, there's another amazing part of this story. There's a a man by the name of Carl Mazur. Now, we've met Carl before in previous chapters. He's a relatively new member of the church. He's immigrated here, and there is this incredible explosion 
and it ruins or damages this school where Carl is teaching. Can you tell us what exploded and what was Carl's reaction to all this? So there's this, it's like a munitions magazine or whatever up on Arsenal Hill is what they called it. And I think there were some young boys, if I remember right, who were messing around with guns or something. And I don't know if they really know, but set off a spark in this ammunitions magazine explodes and uh, and causes damage to the schoolhouse. Mazer walks down to inform Brigham Young that this has occurred and Brigham sends him south ultimately. Yeah. I love that. He goes in, he's like, hey, the building's damaged and what are you <laughs> going to do about this? And Brigham's response is, oh, we'll take care of that. In the meantime, we need you to go to Provo. Right. <laughs> and so he does. Carl G. Mazur is, you could probably call him the father of education in the church system. He's the man who really winds it up and, and gets it going. They do have something going on down there, but it's really struggling. And Mazur goes down and, and really gets this program going. And one of the things that does mention in the chapter there is that Brigham tells him to go down and to not teach anything, even the ABCs, without having the gospel infused in Let's that. listen to a quote here from the book, because that is one of my favorite pieces of advice that he's given. Brother Mazer, said Brigham, I want you to remember that you ought not to teach even the alphabet or the multiplication table without the Spirit of God. So this seems to be an interesting instruction. This is a secular school in some respect. He's going to teach them reading, writing, and arithmetic, but he's going to do it with the Spirit. Yeah, and if you look at the first students who are there, there's some very influential individuals who are there. Uh, there's this fellow by the name of James E. Talmadge who's there. Some of Brigham Young's children are there, and George Sutherland, who becomes a Supreme Court justice is also there and who is not a member of the church. I think George never joins the church and is truly influenced by Mazer and others. So it becomes this very significant event. Let's diverge just for a minute from this chapter. Tell us a little bit more about these academies. They'll be here and there in the book, but while we have you here today, how many church academies were there? What were they like? How did you get in? Give us some background. I don't know how many there were, but I think that it's significant because Brigham Young recognizes that education is truly important. I recall talking with a fellow over in CES who was promoting the literacy program. It was his theory that many young men in particular, but young women, didn't serve missions because they couldn't read or because they weren't literate. Oh, wow. So he said, you imagine that you're sitting there in a living room and your companion cites a scripture or whatever and says, my companion will read this and hands it to you and you can't read it. And so literacy is at its core important because you really struggle to understand the gospel if you can't read. You can go to church and you can listen to people do that, but you can't get yourself into the records and into that information unless you can read. So I think it, it's at its basic level, that's important for members of the church to be able to have that literacy. In uh, 18, I think it's in 1890, James E. Talmadge and Mazur, one summer they go south, but they go down and they begin to, if you will, preach the gospel of the academy system. And they encourage each stake to establish an academy so that the children can have that opportunity. 
at this time, there's not really a government-sponsored education yeah, system. No, so they're no public schools at this point. No public schools. So they're trying to supplement that absence of public schools by developing these academies. And there is a little bit of a struggle. There are those within the communities who come down and say, you know, my boy's pretty good at hauling hay. And, uh, you know, what more is he going to need to know in his life? And they can't see that there are these opportunities beyond education. And so Talmadge and Mazur try to preach that. And then each of these stakes begin to establish academies. So when you say how many academies were there, there were a lot. And there are, you know, in the 20s, the church began to divest itself of the academies because the government opportunities were expanding. Right. And so if you look at Weber State University, for example, that was an academy. Snow College was an academy. Dixie, I believe, was an academy. BYU was Brigham Young Academy. And well, and initially, these academies were f for children of all ages, teenagers, adults even. And what were the demographics as far as male, female, things like that? I, I know that there were a lot of women. I don't think that there were any restrictions imposed. Uh, there was a focus, particularly at BYU, BYA, Brigham Young Academy, to have uh, what was called a normal school. It was to teach people to teach. And then these teachers would go out and work in the academies and teach. So they had to have a core of teachers who could actually work there. And some of the academies did well, and some of them kind of struggled. They were always struggling with money. Money was a real issue to keep a teacher on salary, and sometimes they were paid in non-cash bales of hay or eggs or whatever. Are there places where these academies, these, the buildings still exist? Are there any of them that are preserved? Yeah, there are actually. The, the Oneida Stake Academy, where President Benson attended, uh, is uh, where? It's in up Idaho. in Preston, Idaho. Preston, Idaho. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it was moved, I believe, in 2003 and preserved. And it, it's a really, really beautiful, cool yeah. building up there you can go visit. So the Snow College still has the remnants of a few of the buildings there. Uh, I'm not sure about the University of Utah. I'm not sure about Weber. Don't know if, what they have up there. Is there a library in Provo that's in, in an old State Academy building? I can't well, remember. Well, see, so that's BYA, Brigham Young oh. Academy. Uh, that was where the, initially where the academy was located. And then they purchased some property, which they called Temple Hill. There was supposed to be a temple built there. They just built a little bit farther back and dedicated it in 1972. That area, which is now where the main campus of BYU is, was uh, called... Temple Hill, and they built the three buildings there just right along the edge of the hill. And then, of course, the other buildings were built later as they as it progressed. So, Jeff, tell us from your perspective, what is the legacy that has been left by these academies? You know, I recall talking with some folks who were involved with the Perpetual Education Fund. I asked one of the, the fellows who was involved, and I said, tell me what this does. And there were some pictures on the walls. And he said, let's take, for example, this such and such a brother. I can't remember who, what, what his name was now, but let's take, for example, him. He can't even afford to come to church every Sunday. He doesn't have enough money to pay the fare to get there on Sunday. So you take him and you train him to be a welder or whatever, and now he can afford to buy a car. And not only can he afford to buy a car, but he can pick people up and drive them to church. And because he can be there every Sunday, he can now be the branch president. 
So that's the impact. You change lives, and ever so incrementally, you change these lives where people can do these things. You empower people, and I think that our church, thankfully, has recognized that education is so important for us. And it doesn't, you know, it's not necessarily you have to have a PhD. Uh, it's important to have, have a vocation and be able to contribute and to be able to take care of your family and be able to then have the means that you can at least contribute and you don't have to work so hard that you can't be an active and involved member in your church because you're so busy trying to just keep food on the table. We see a little bit later in the book that it has that very impact for Susa Younggates. Because she's able to go and because she's able to learn, it provides opportunities that she's going to need because she ends up needing to be able to take care of her family. So there's a great story in this very book that makes that exact point. Well, and I think the Pathways program that they've just introduced is going to be incredible. You can go online and you can, for a nominal amount of money, you can get some really incredible education online. It's just a, I don't think we really comprehend what that's going to be. Well, Jeff, we so much appreciate you being here with us to help us understand more about the Brigham Young Academies, the Stake Academies, the legacy really of these early educational programs for the church. I would just tell our listeners, if you have not read the chapter yet, the funniest moment in the entire volume two is in this chapter. I'm just going to leave it there. It is really funny, and it's one of my favorites. And also, we have this incredible scene with Brigham Young when they're dedicating a portion of the St. George Temple, which is, of course, the first temple finished since Nauvoo. And we'll talk about that more in a future episode. So there's a lot in this chapter that you can even learn more about. We just want to remind you about topics, pages that you can find more information about United Orders, Mexico, Heber J. Grant, and of course the Church Academies, which we went over today. And also just let us know what you think. You can always email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org with any questions you have or comments that you want to share with us. And if you visit our website at saints.churchofjesuschrist.org, you can access all of the chapters, topics, and additional videos. And we just want to thank you so much for joining us. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening.